Well, uh, we were at, at, at sales kickoff last week. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Field kickoff. FKO. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was pretty fun. You gave a nice talk there, Richard. I let you, 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 uh, you nice. mastered the art of the gigantic picture on one slide. Yeah, I tried not to go with like the scary thing, like a clown or something that would have really mm. messed people up. Although we did see clowns later in the week. Clowns but, uh, in the woods. Yeah, that was. We had a good crowd there. It's it's crazy to see how many folks are here at Pivotal and how fast we've grown over even these last few months from a sales perspective. It was nice to see you in person as well. We don't just have our digital experiences. That's right. Not just our digital experiences. I like that. Well, why don't you introduce yourself briefly, guest, before I regale the audience with more nonsense from my head. Hey, uh, I'm Molly Crowther. I'm a senior technical program manager at Pivotal. Uh, I work mostly on security for Cloud Foundry. Fantastic. So, uh, awesome. so here's what I wanted to ask you, Richard. Now, when you have the giant pictures in your presentation, I have found the following, and maybe, maybe, maybe you too, Molly, have had this problem. Is like, so you got a big picture, and the colors in the picture change, and then often they conflict with the text you want to use. And, you know, you can do the thing where, like, where, like, you got, like, a solid background, so you got that going on. Or maybe you can do, like, the thing where you mess with the transparency of it. Or, or like, I don't even know. But, like, what is, what is y'all's solution for the giant picture? And then you need to put a title on there. And then you can have it actually, like, be readable. Yeah, these are first world problems, aren't they? Uh, I either go, you know it's tough to find pictures that always have like that one light area where you can put dark text on it. That's way mm -hmm. too convenient. So I usually do end up, as you said, either I put like, you know, dark box on top of it with a, a transparency and then put text on that or do like a black bar across the whole thing and put the text on that. So yeah, there's just nothing worse than getting those slides up on the screen and it, everything's completely unreadable mm -hmm. because you put like green text on a, you know, green background. So Try to be considerate to the speaker. You you seem to do the same. When I see your talks, you sometimes do use pictures and the like. And uh, yeah, we you seem like you use a mix of things. No. Yeah, yeah. I'm always very unsatisfied with it. I don't know. Have, have I, so so Molly, I've seen several of your presentations now, and by several I mean two. I actually did some preparation uh, for this episode, which is just to blow Richard's mind. Oh, great. But it, it, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, it, w would you would you ever be so bold as to only have a picture on a slide? Like, is that something you would go for and trust oh, that yeah. it works out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what would be your criteria? Uh, your I've, your sort of setup for? Were you like, I'm going just picture, no text? I mean, I use emoji a lot, like to copy Auntie mm. uh, and Justin Smith a bit. Um, so, just like one emoji that you can transition into another. Um, I think I've used my dog as a single picture on a slide. Uh, so yeah, it just depends on, on whether it can convey all of the subtlety that I need it to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe right. I should try that. I think I've it's only funny, used though. a big picture like that. Yeah, I mean, once. With that, I mean, yeah, I mean, Molly, even with that style too, not like my slide with four words on it is any better, but we've really transitioned to this. Like there's no crutches anymore. You can't just sit there with your nine bullets and read things and prepare like an hour before. Like now, like I practiced a lot for my keynote last week because I had no notes. Like I had no words on the slide. I couldn't just stare at a screen deer in a headlight. So do you find the same thing when you did like your spring one talk, which was a lot of emojis and pictures? Was that just a ton of prep or did you just feel like you had a good flow and you had two or three notes in the, you know, in the slide notes? I actually did exactly what you said that we can't do, which is I wrote out a whole bunch of pros like an hour before, but just <laughs> used it 
in the notes instead of uh, on the slides. Mm. Movie magic. There you go. I used to find that really helpful that I would write like a little essay before a presentation and then it would kind of like stick in my mind. I guess I do that every now and then. I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, I mean, what, what, when, one of the difficulties I have is, uh, is I've, another technique I've seen people use and, and our, our buddy Andrew Clay Schaefer does this a lot is you have like the single word or sentence on a slide and you sort of like flip through it. But I figure, I, I think that would either just be reading the sentence or like you would need an awesome amount of ironically for the format pre- preparation to know that like, what is the next sentence going to be? Because I find my problem is like, I'll be on a slide. And then as they say, I'll speak to the next three slides. And then I switch to them. And I'm always like, Oh, I already covered that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's tricky. I mean, last week, I knew the three points I wanted to say on each slide, just tried to make sure I memorized it and then forgot two of the three on Mm. at least half the slide. So it was perfect. That's right. Well, you had, you know, you had my favorite point in all presentations, which is uh, Richard needs a raise. I think that was very, very thoroughly delivered. That was that good. is the only thing, the only thing everyone came up and at. Like nobody remembered the other nine and a half minutes of the slide, <laughs> except the one stupid joke slide about Richard needs a raise. Like I had on the screen for ten seconds. Like it's yeah. the only thing everyone brought up. See, and another another successful marketing feat. You identified the most important stakeholder and prioritized their backlog, and everything else just you know the other personas can wait in line. But that, that's that's good. The message that got is, through. Uh, it's a subtle campaign of persuasion. Uh, so, step one completed. So we have we have a few little news items, and we'll come back, uh, or you know, we'll, we'll we'll talk with Molly about those those presentations and more. But one of them, speaking of uh, keynotey yeah. things, I th- somehow you dug up a fun. Uh, I, li- I like the format of this article because it uses like just sort of like this uh, in passing comment from uh, Microsoft's uh, Scott Guthrie, the the red polo guy. And and he's basically like, yeah, you know, in Azure, people are using blockchain, but it's he doesn't say nothing burger, but it's basically a nothing burger. And then boom, there's a whole rest of the article that someone uh, builds stuff around. As as I'm sure, like yourself, Richard, I appreciate the art of holy crap. I was supposed to email my editor something in three hours, and I have nothing. So that's a good uh, a good a good uh, dressing up the nothing burger and a full on burger. I think, including like some goat cheese and caramelized onions, maybe. But I thought it was it was a fun article in the sense of like. It is worth pointing out that, like, uh, yeah, you got whatever a Bitcoin is and all of this theoretic awesomeness of uh, what you could do with the, I don't know, not only distributed nature of, but sort of like this public record of, of promises that people made or things that they said that are verified with each other. But thus far, there doesn't seem to be a, uh, a lot of actual uses of it aside from, you know, making 50 cent and Kim.com rich and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I included it in the news this week because I think it was, I mean, you pointed it out well. I just, we get really excited about stuff and like what moves the needle for public cloud? I would still bet you that if we looked at Amazon, we looked at Microsoft and others, they're making the vast majority of their money still on just compute like IaaS. And yes, I mean, they have great growth in the databases and great growth in these other things. We get excited about Lambda or functions and blockchain. And I mean, I I would just be shocked if it was any more than a half percent of their actual revenue, if that. Mm. So just I think those reminders, we get excited, but the bread and butter for every cloud provider is probably scarily their commodity stuff, which is infrastructure. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, yeah. Well, it's, you, you know, you know, we don't often get a, uh, we're not lucky enough to have a security perspective all the time. What, what do the people <laughs> in the security world make of all that blockchain stuff, Molly? Like, it seems like, I don't know. It seems like y'all would be like, yeah, we got fingerprints and PGP stuff. I don't know what your problem is. Although maybe, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, some revolutionary awesomeness uh, that you could do something with. I think a lot of people are pretty skeptical. I mean, if you think about all the stuff that's been going on with like cryptocurrencies in the last couple of weeks, um, like the bubbles and the bursts and the everybody just trying to make money from literally nothing at all. Uh, I haven't figured out yet how blockchain is actually going to help the the vast majority of people other than, you know, maybe in some of the financial tech spaces. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all, all that, all that weird, uh, tulip mania kind of puts a, uh, is it, you say a pal, it put, it puts a, uh, a, a bad shadow over all of it, which is, which is weird. That stuff's annoying <laughs> anyhow. So, so then also in, uh, in exciting news, uh, are the, the, uh, everyone's favorite thing that they've forgotten that they depend on every day. Dropbox looks like it's gonna, gonna IPO. And, yeah. and in that, in those things, like, I think on one of my other podcasts, we'll we'll probably talk about it uh, to to like horse glue inducing nausea of beating a horse. But like you know, one they had like a one point one billion in revenue, which which that's astounding, and lots of users. But then they also uh, like who knew that so many normal people use Dropbox? I thought it was just a thing like nerds use to sync up their markdown files, but it's apparently a big deal. Uh, which I guess you could know by it. the amount of apps that integrate with it in uh, on your phone right. land. But anyways, they also said that they uh, they had moved all their infrastructure to uh, to their own infrastructure out of out of public clouds, I assume. And then there was similar uh, reports that uh, Apple. The headlines were very deceptive here. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm like cynical guy on this podcast today, but the headlines were like Apple confirms it uses Google Cloud, and then you read the article and it's like, and they also use AWS. So you know. I guess good redundancy is nice. And uh, and then I think also Spotify runs on Google Cloud, which makes sense because uh, they compete with Amazon. So just like the healthcare industry, retail, music, you wouldn't want to run on AWS. But so, so Richard, does it matter that all that Dropbox runs on its own infrastructure? Does this mean everyone needs to start doing that? Gosh, it seems like there were two violent hot takes with uh, that news coming out. First was like, see... Public cloud isn't for everybody. Like Dropbox is fine. Mm-hmm. They did all their infrastructure. Maybe you should too. And then there's the other violent hot take, which was they're a complete unicorn. You're an idiot if you ever do anything on premises. So it's like there's probably, as always, in the middle of yes, Dropbox. And I think it was mostly storage because obviously Dropbox is a storage company. They got some benefits from their own storage infrastructure, and they can. There's reasons they they want to own what they're they're putting on here for depreciation purposes or even sovereignty who knows so yes it, it, maybe this is just good for dropbox and not for everybody else but there is still value sometimes in in controlling your own destiny and that's not always a bad move and yes you might not have the flexibility you get from public cloud but maybe you like the more predictability you get from owning it yourself so i think there's multiple lessons in there probably none of them are the uh whiplash oriented ones mm, yeah it needs some lukewarm takes leave leave a glass of water on the kitchen counter all day and that's the temperature <laughs> your take should be i mean assuming that you've got good climate control in your house and it's not either Natural. really hot or cold uh which right. is you know i i was also like looking through some of their financials and they were talking about how they uh they had like slashed expenses or you know i think 
whatever everyone has a different thing for it, but they slashed uh, administrative expenses by by a huge amount and i was thinking like man that must have been a rough year for per diems and travel if they had to uh, cinch up their 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 expenses tragic a lot of a lot of snacks going out the door that's right like so that. so you know my heart goes out to the previously pampered staff of dropbox they're not going to have those <laughs> uh those those thick fluffy white carpets at their conference booth anymore or you remember you have you ever seen their booths they got like wood paneling and they got like uh really clean like, t-shirts like mahogany? oh i don't know that's if it's classy. i don't know if it's mahogany i mean oh. you know they're no they're no google or facebook <laughs> But, but they have really nice booths, and they would even they would have like they would have like those fake little uh, square rectangular boxes of fake grass. It's very calming and nice. They probably still have a big booth coming up at South by Southwest. We'll have to check that out. So over over in uh, in in y'all's land, we also like refreshed our website. Big industry shattering news. As, as I recall. Right. And, and it's, it's very nice. Like, as I was telling someone, I, I didn't like load it 10 times to see if it randomly does this or not, but there's like five, uh, five of our customer stories, I think like right off the mm-hmm. bat, which, which is good. I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We spent some time. I mean, as always trying to simplify messaging, cause it gets way too easy with every tech company to end up getting stuck in transformation hell and, and all these sort of you know, digital business garbage stuff where you're just like, what do you actually do? Like, what do you sell? And so Mm. all of this is always an effort to get down to like, hey, Pivotal sells software. We sell a methodology and like practices. And hey, the software is a platform you run apps on and a bunch of cool frameworky stuff. Yeah, that's true. Make it easy because that's what people are looking for, not a manifesto about how you're transforming everything and for everybody. Yeah, they, they want to know what it looks like. It reminds me, you ever read that, uh, speaking of the hell of transformation, you ever read that Neil Gaiman short story where this guy like all of a sudden pops into this room and there's sort of like this smooth-skinned demon in there who like tortures him for an eternity, and then he turns into the smooth-skinned demon and tortures another person who comes in. It's, it's a regular like, oh, I see what's going on here. I think that's what a lot of digital transformation marketing is like. It's just an endless loop with no point unless you enjoy the process. That's right. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) That's good to know. That's right. Next time you need to inspire your staff to come up with some good content, Richard, you can use. I'll I'll read that story to them. I need a strong intro for my next white paper. I think I found it. (laughs) That's right. And then, and then finally, uh, also in pivotal news, we have like a new ver- a, a new uh, sort of like PCF or Cloud Foundry on your desktop thing coming out. Now, I haven't gotten a chance to read up on this, but what's what's the story with it? Yeah, we've got you know, if you want to do Cloud Foundry development, your choices are either push to public, which is how most public clouds work. They try to do some local simulators and things, but a lot of times you end up developing in the public cloud itself. And pivotal customers have had or all customers been able to use PCF dev, which is like the single virtual machine with all of PCF stuffed in there. And it's fine. It runs on your machine. It's cool. It has some other dependencies though, that were a bit of a pain. So there's been an effort to continue to break things apart. And so CF dev is, is super early alpha, but people are, seem excited about it. And this just runs kind of natural, uh, native virtualization on your Mac or on your PC and others, and just brings all the Cloud Foundry components down. So as a developer, I can just see a push and it's all just running in containers on my desktop. And then, hey, things are awesome. Now let's go push it to public. So there's going to be a f- few different tools here. The CF dev is just open source Cloud Foundry. We'll do some PCF kind of extensions over time. 
So just kind of early stuff. We're messing around with this, but I've already played with it. It works well. It seems like a bunch of people were excited. And the whole point is how are we making development a little easier when you are disconnected or you don't want to deal with the latency or dealing with public cloud, or even if you don't have an environment yet publicly, you know, your company hasn't set up your Cloud Foundry environment yet. Are you frozen or can you actually do some simulation locally? Mm. Well, that sounds useful. So, uh, so, so uh, speaking of usefulness, it's another masterful mm. transition. Well done. <laughs> so, so security is useful, and uh, you, you've given a couple of talks on that recently, right? Right, Molly. Like, what what were the uh, what are those talks that you went over in the, in the sense of like uh, how are they representative of of what you work on around here? Like, what do you spend your time doing? Yeah. So the the first talk that I did last year was at um, Cloud Foundry Summit in Basel, Switzerland, back in October, I think. Uh, and that was mostly about how we do vulnerability management within Cloud Foundry, which is pretty interesting just because as a platform, it allows you to update your operating system images really fast and really easily. Um, so we had, I think there was a lot of content coming out after Meltdown Inspector talking about how um, like Pivotal Web Services, for instance, updated all of their images in about a day um, where I'm sure we have uh, there's other people in the industry who are still struggling to, to update after meltdown inspector. Um, So that's one of the things that I work on day to day is just vulnerability management for the community. And then the talk at spring one was more about um, trying to bring healthy security culture into your organization as a whole. And the way that we've done that at cloud foundry and a couple of different ways that people can try to improve the security culture of their own organizations. It's interesting going through your stuff and realizing that basically like uh, there, there's sort of like all the flashy high profile stuff of security of like, you know, I, uh, I, I found this chink in the armor of something and ooh, a bug and, and, and I got a fancy name. Like I, I forget the name of the one that had been in like the kernel for like 11 months, like some dog or elephant or something, or I got a bleeding heart and all this. And then, and then there's almost like the, uh, the, the bigger effect that happens is like, well, now what? Now we need to like have a, have a process of like distributing that and notifying it and integrating it into here. It's almost like the difference between, I mean, it's, it's sort of like just, just scouting something out and finding it versus like, well, now we need to build an entire city over here. And uh, a, a lot of, a lot of what I thought was interesting about what you're going over from that perspective was uh, how do we basically build up that process from not much process <laughs> and and how do we track these things and and uh and and make sure that they're integrated and then and then they, the part that i thought was really interesting was uh uh it turns out it's really hard to get people to apply these patches in the sense that i and i'm kind of reverse engineering that that like in the sense of how much effort y'all put in to notify people they need to update these things it would seem to indicate that they don't just sort of like gleefully do it. And in fact, like it might be easier to get people to like update the apps on their phone than to like patch the stuff that they need to in production. It would seem like, I don't know if that's a bad generalization. No, I think that's definitely true. Um, And it's, it's just a different philosophy than people have been used to over the past, you know, 30 to 40 years in tech. Um, And Justin Smith talks about this a lot, but 
kind of the old way of thinking before people were beginning to be cloud native was, uh, you know, we have our infrastructure and it needs to stay the same because we know, you know, what we're getting ourselves into. And anytime it changes, that's when we're unsafe. Uh, where really once we're, we're getting into the situation where you're in a public cloud or you're pushing apps all the time, it's better for you if your infrastructure is constantly changing. So um, as you know, you're, you're tearing down your servers and building them back up with Bosch and it's really easy to do, like that's conceivably kicking out anybody who made their way into your network um, that maybe you'll, you won't know about until years later even. Um, so we're definitely running into the situation where um, customers have long certification cycles where, um, you know, we're, we're trying to push updates to them and they're like, well, we need to understand the security posture of this and everything. And, and that takes, you know, can take months where it's like, we have this, we have the update ready for you. Like you can just take it. You'll be more secure if you just take it. And all of these certification processes are actually making you less secure in the meantime. So, you know, along those lines, I mean, I guess technically they're uh, something of a competitor now, but whatever, like, like what, how do you, how did like all the, the security community respond to like the, 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 before they pivoted to Kubernetes, like the core OS, uh, sort of theory of things, which correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember when I talked to Alex a long time ago, their CEO there, he was like, isn't it awesome how Chrome just auto updates and like, why don't our servers do that? And then they, they had a bunch of auto updating for, for the servers. Like, is that cool? Or is it, is it like the worst idea ever that you would have your, uh, your OS is updating in production without you really knowing about it? No, I think that's great. Like that's, that's exactly <laughs> where we're trying to get to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I know, yeah, there's been a lot of work with like PCF pipelines in the, the pivotal space, but also um, like there's been plenty of talk at Cloud Foundry Summit on, on doing this in the open source as well. Like whenever a new stem, stem cell is available, just pick it up um, and roll it out as, as widely as you can. Um, because we're doing, we're doing that um, kind of smoke testing for you and the changes that actually come through like with a new stem cell upgrade, for instance, are, are usually pretty small. It's just packages getting updated. So um, the more we can get people feeling comfortable in saying, like, I know I'm going to be more secure if I'm constantly updating, um, that's where we want our customers to be. Interesting. So one thing you mentioned earlier, Molly, was kind of vulnerabilities in that area that you deal with. Can you, I, I don't feel like I'm super smart on how we handle all this. Could you kind of walk through maybe a, a, an incident or a day in the life of, like, where do vulnerabilities get reported from? Do we discover them? Do we hear them outside? What's a CVE? Do we submit those somewhere? What does that look like? How does that make its way into software? Could you kind of explain what it go, what it means to discover, report, and then patch a vulnerability, at least in Pivotal's world? Yeah, definitely. Um, so if we think of vulnerabilities that are discovered like within Cloud Foundry rather than within our third-party dependencies. So like something that we're actually responsible for fixing um, within, within our own code. Uh, generally, those reports come from either Pivotal customers, um, other customers that use different, um, different distributions of Cloud Foundry, or kind of trusted partners that we have in the community. 
And those generally get reported to us either through, um, we have two email addresses. There's security at pivotal.io and security at cloudfoundry.org that basically end up in the same place. And we have a security triage team that's a few pairs of engineers um, in San Francisco paired with a uh, support person from Pivotal. And they work to first make sure that they can reproduce the issue um, and that it actually makes sense to start working with the product teams to potentially fix it. Um, And then they do some coordination with the product teams uh, to make sure that any changes that they make are actually, um, actually fix the whole issue and don't introduce any other regressions. Um, because this, the security triage team is kind of tasked with understanding the actual security implications of the bug. Uh, and the product teams are fixing it, but also making sure it doesn't impact usability or um, basically create a breaking change for customers. And then um, kind of the next part, once we know that there is a vulnerability, we'll reserve a CVE number, um, which stands for uh, Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. There's like a national database that handles all of the CVE disclosures. Um, And we'll actually notify the Cloud Foundry Foundation if there's a problem in open source code. And then some notification goes out to the different companies that have certified distributions of Cloud Foundry. And then from there, it's like basically just working as quickly as we can to get the bug actually fixed um, and pushed out to the open source and to CF deployment and then to make its way back into, you know, pivotal closed source code as well. Yeah. So does everyone use that CVE registry? It sounds like no, that obviously it's up to discretion. So, I mean, how does someone choose to participate at? What if they're not using that? Are they just distributing patches other ways or communicating other ways? Kind of how did we decide to, to go in with that? Yeah, I think it's an industry best practice, but there definitely are companies that either don't publish their CVEs publicly or they publish them kind of ad hoc to like various mailing lists. Uh, We've tried to be really, really good about um, both publishing our CVEs publicly as soon as possible so that customers know that there's something that they need to pick up, um, but also getting that information back to the national database so that um, other kind of alerting software that's based on that national database will let our customers know that there's a CVE. Um, So it just kind of closes the feedback loop to make sure that everybody knows that there's something that, that needs to be fixed. Um, and that's one of the the ways that we've kind of built this culture at um, Cloud Foundry is that when you find a CVE, we obviously want it to be reported um, because it's usually in open source code and other people could conceivably find it. Um, so we want teams, if they find things, to also report them to us like within their own product, um, which they've gotten gotten really good at doing because teams know that they're not going to get in trouble if they find a security issue. Like it's going to be another reason to um, encourage customers to upgrade. So there's that kind of like positive feedback loop when uh, when issues actually get reported to us. It makes sense. Forget. Remind me, how long have you been at Pivotal? Almost two years. Two years uh, as of yesterday, actually. Nice. <laughs> Almost like me. So, uh, question for you is: On one hand, 
you know, from the outside looking in, someone could say like, oh, gosh, what are you, what are you advertising the fact that you have vulnerabilities? That not that kind of lousy PR that you're bragging about? Hey, look at all these vulnerabilities we have and that we've patched them. So, I mean, is there a, a cultural thing that you ever noticed that we had to get through? Or was it kind of built in from default? Like, no, this is transparency. These are things that need to be fixed. And regardless of where blame lies, whether that's in an open source thing that we have nothing to do with, or whether it's our own code, like this is the responsible thing to do. And we should celebrate that. Do you do you think there's ever some any angst about advertising this sort of thing? And do, do you even see enterprises sometimes being skeptical about awareness because they'll be blamed for something or have we gotten past that and say no this is just responsible computing i think one thing that really helped when we first started kind of the really big push for for more security in cloud foundry which is about almost two years ago i guess was justin smith who's kind of our head of security said to me when we were getting started like i hope we find as many things as possible like we can't set up a, any sort of even like cultural compensation around not finding things. Like we should be happy anytime someone reports anything to us and it doesn't matter kind of how big or how small. And I think that really helped set the tone for what our security program was going to look like. Um, and that's a, a really important thing for, for organizations to think about. Like how are you culturally encouraging people to report issues? Um, there's definitely been a lot of philosophical discussion about how open should we be and how quickly, um, because we definitely do have customers, um, cloud foundries use a lot of big banks and they've said, you know, I wish that we got to hear about this vulnerability before the public did, um, for instance, but we've been able to have conversations with them and explain that like secrecy only really helps the bad guys. It doesn't help. Um, the good people actually find out what's wrong and and patch quickly. Um, so I think we have built that in from the start, and that's been really important. Like as we try to uh, make Cloud Foundry more secure. So, so just as you are doing, that's another thing you've uh, you've spoken about quite a bit. Is the um, I don't know. Like you could, you could call it like the culture or like you should have developers stop writing insecure code, like all, all of those kinds of ways of thinking about it. But you, you went through some actual like, uh, tactics you had to not be like the scary security person coming in and telling people how to live their life. And so like, like in, in, in your experience around here and elsewhere, like how do you, uh, how do you introduce that sort of like security hygiene and, and in the sense that like you would like it to actually stick and not just be uh, annoying for people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, we've been doing lately, and I'm actually uh, in Portland this week doing this, uh, is security workshops with kind of as many product teams as we can get our hands on. Um, and those workshops have been developed with the cognitive science pair that actually works at Pivotal. Um, it's pretty cool that we, we have some scientists in residence that are helping us with this. Um, and the idea is when people are scared about security or they don't feel knowledgeable about security, um, you obviously want to teach them, but we don't think it's super effective to either like sit them in front of a computer and make them watch a video for an hour or sit them in a meeting room as a team and just talk at them, um, which is something that we've tried previously and and we didn't find it very effective 
Um, so what we've been doing has been going around to product teams and doing exercises with individual pairs to help them just become a little bit more skeptical about their product um, is what we're trying to do. And then we actually teach members of the team to facilitate the same workshop with other people on their team so that when we leave a location, um, that knowledge can kind of grow and scale more virally than um, having to fly people around and, and the only knowledge sharing happens when we're there. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, I'm trying to map that to, you know, sp specific, I, I think I've watched enough videos in my life where it was like, hey, quick, take this SOP or training on security. Great. Now you're secure. Get back to work as a developer. Exactly. But I mean, so let's, you know, you talk to enterprise customers here, you see the, the work they're doing. How is security supposed to fit into even, we'll call it agile delivery of projects, but really projects in general, it's not scalable for security pros to be embedded in every team full time. That doesn't seem like there's enough of them across the enterprise. So is it this sort of kind of pairing education sort of mode and then you cycle through? Is it hopefully not the code review at the end where everyone's breathing down your neck because you just have to say yes before it goes to prod? Like what is the right place for security in a project delivery cycle, especially nowadays when it can't be an afterthought? Yeah, I think we think about it kind of the same way as design. Um, probably, you know, 10 years ago, design was like pretty colors that got thrown in at the end after all the code was already built, right? Um, but now we're trying to build usability into every story. So as you write a story, you're trying to figure out how is this feature actually gonna be used? What does it look like on screen to someone? How do they interact with it? And with the pairing exercises, we're trying to get the same parity as usability or high availability get um, like within Pivotal and Cloud Foundry teams so that when you're sitting down and writing a story or working on a feature, you're thinking, what are the actual security implications here? Um, let's think about not just valuable information that someone might want to steal, but usable information that someone could get out of this component if they've already exploited a system and are trying to like move laterally through your network. Yeah. Do you do something then after that? So before a team ships, I mean, heck, we have another PCF release coming up here in a couple of weeks. I mean, is security part of pipelines? Is security a check that also happens at the end somewhere? Is that unnecessary if you've been doing it throughout the way? What happens after you feel like you've kind of coached a team up and they're in good shape? When else do you intersect with them? I personally don't. Um, a lot of the different teams have their own ways that they go about this, either um, you know, compliance pipelines that are helping them figure out whether they're PCI compliant or um, you know, HIPAA compliant, things like that. Um, a lot of it is done through actual customer deployments rather than on the product side. Um, but at the moment, it's definitely up to individual teams to understand what makes sense for their product. Um, and we so found like that that be, yeah, like that, that would be up to them. Yeah, there. Are, I know various teams are doing like static code analysis. For example, we're also doing vulnerability scanning for the platform as a whole and helping to integrate into um, like their current workflows. Like everything that we're doing is just to try to um, make sure that the teams have ownership of it 
and to fit into their existing workflows so that security isn't something that's preventing you from shipping um, or slowing you down at the end. Like the farther forward we can build it into the process, the less disruptive it is. Yeah, can you give any examples of what you uh, would tell a pair or as you're even just in general, like what should devs be looking out for? Like, I think it's really lame. I guess I did this on stage and field kickoff last week too, but just saying like, be more secure, like that, that's not even useful anymore. So like, what are those, some of those things specifically around whatever it is, coding techniques or practices around how you run or least privilege, like what do you encourage teams to do to be responsible? Well, so there's kind of two parts of it. It's one part, as like I said about the workshops, it's just teaching teams to be more skeptical. Um, so one of the things about Pivotal and Cloud Foundry in general is that our development teams are very empathetic to our users and to people who want to do the right thing while using the system. And they just don't have as much experience thinking about people who don't have the best intentions or who actually want to break their product. Um, so just kind of switching that mindset we found has been really helpful and ends up with teams like once they've been trained, actually reporting more vulnerabilities to us. Um, anecdotally, we don't have like data on that at the moment. Um, but the other thing is just to help the teams understand that the security triage team especially is there to help them. Um, if there's any, anytime they have a question about something, like that's what, that's the sort of behavior that we want to encourage. Like we want to help teams know that if they do have a question, there's someone to go to so that um, there's kind of that psychological safety because you don't want a pair to be working on a story and say, oh, I think if we do this feature this way, you know, somebody's social security number is going to get leaked, but no one told us to care about that. So let's just ignore that for right now and we'll, we'll just do the story and we'll deliver it. Um, like that healthy skepticism is what we're trying to build in because we're not going to have a security person looking over the shoulder of every single pair who's developing a product. So, so you've covered this, uh, to, to some extent here, here and there, but I, but I wonder, like, I don't even know the terminology for it, but like, um, a fair amount of, of, uh, of, of kind of what we talked about. And I, and I think, I think what the, you know, y'all's team does is sort of like, securing cloud foundry itself and and like a question that i often get is so if we have these product teams and i've i've heard about like you know devops and balance teams and all of this stuff like do i actually have like a dedicated security person on that team and then if i don't am i doing the same thing that i'm doing now where i've got like security audits or like what do you like what do you do in that case like what are the controls I think that's a security term, right? Like, what are the controls that people have if they're just going to let these people, like, deploy multiple times a week uh, instead of having to audit things? I'm assuming you mean, like, on the, the customer side? like Yeah, yeah. It, the, the, actual, the actual application that people are working on, not, like, the platform that, that people are using. Yeah, I think it, it varies customer to customer um, and industry to industry. So those like different customers have different regulatory things that are set up in place already. Um, I'm just like less on the application development side. So I don't know as much about how they're securing their, their applications. Um, but there, there are obviously plenty of add-ons for cloud foundry that, that yeah. help with that. 
um, and plenty of work on certifications. So for instance, um, John Field has gotten numerous Cloud Foundry customers through like PCI compliance for their foundations. Um, and I'm assuming that ends up touching the development side as well. Right. Um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, vulnerability scanning, uh, the languages that you use. Hopefully you're not using languages that let you get buffer overflows and things like that really quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, third-party libraries and dependencies are just a, a huge part of, of keeping application development secure in kind of a cloud-native way. Yeah, I, I guess there's a layer of uh, trusting yourselves, yourselves, and then also trusting, as you say, the the third party stuff you bring in. And and it sounds like, I mean, I I get a lot of these questions, you know, uh, to invoke our uh, smooth skin demon friend of transformation, right? Like, it's sort of like the well, what about this thing, and what about that? And and oftentimes, you know, people will uh, they'll they'll give a lengthy answer of like why this stuff doesn't work for them, like all these dependencies they have, and maybe as as you're kind of alluding to they have like very stringent security needs and i feel like frequently the answer is like well you should do that stuff <laughs> like like there's no uh, there's no secret sauce of of removing that kind of toil from what you have to do so just put it into the the mixture of other things that you've improved instead which i guess is a little depressing of an answer cuz you always want to like <laughs> remove toil but then again, maybe it's a relief to know that you're not missing something. You didn't like skip those five pages in the Lean Enterprise book that solved your problem of how to integrate with like six different off-the-shelf systems and make sure that you pass your uh, five capital letter security standards from you know the Rand Corporation or whatever you're freaking out about. Is Rand still around, or have I been watching too many old movies? No, I think you're fine. All right, thank you. I was. Uh... I was wondering, Molly, because, you know, we talk a little bit about devs on the enterprise side, but if we go back to the pivotal teams, I think you do help with a patch day we do internally. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. So what's that? I mean, how do we keep our own teams? And when there's a security crisis and everyone goes, hey, my backlog is set. And you say, haha, just kidding. Here's something we all have to take care of right now. What's a patch day like or a patch week? How does that work at Pivotal? We've definitely iterated on on this process a lot. Um, so patch days slash weeks usually focus on the Ubuntu stem cells that Bosch provides that are, are the base image of all your VMs. Um, if you're running Ubuntu VMs in cloud foundry and, um, the company that provides Ubuntu, which is canonical, they, um, they periodically release security updates for Ubuntu. Um, and those are classified by severity. Um, so you'll have like lows, mediums, highs, and criticals. Um, and if something is high or critical that gets released by them, we try to push stem cells and have all of the uh, pivotal Cloud Foundry teams patch with that as quickly as possible. Um, but if, for instance, we haven't had a, a high severity issue, there are a lot of like lows and mediums that kind of sit around waiting for us to pick them up. Um, so we'll do a scheduled patch week where Bosch will provide the stem cells and um, all of the pivotal teams will cut their tiles to use the new stem cell. Um, that's changed, you know, because recently Bosch decided that they were going to start just cutting stem cells every two weeks because we have a lot of different customers that have different SLAs around um, 
CBEs that come out. So some will say like if a low CBE has been in the wild for 20 days and we don't fix it, we're out of compliance or other customers say, you know, two weeks or, you know, every other Friday or you have to patch on a full moon. Like all of the different requirements are uh, often in conflict with each other because some customers want to patch CVEs very quickly and some want to patch them very slowly because uh, there's obviously risk every time you you make an update. Um, so the patch week is just a, a way to coordinate all of the um, pivotal teams that create tiles for Cloud Foundry to have them all patch the stem cells at the same time. Yeah, that's great. Hopefully, our I mean, I would think some of our customers could benefit from that stuff too, just because, I don't know, sometimes it just can't be like, hey, we're bored right now, let's do security stuff. There's probably got to be a constant rhythm and, and somebody keeping an eye on it and making it somewhat interesting and, and beneficial, not just crap, it's toil time, it's time to go patch stuff. So the last thing I had for you was, you know, as we look at our ourselves, our customers, whatever, where do you see the kind of separation between what a developer is responsible for security-wise, an operator, what they should depend on platforms for. I mean, what's what's the ideal here? Because maybe the answer is everyone's responsible for everything. Or maybe there's a take of, hey, developers have a certain responsibility at their app. Operators kind of keeping a platform healthy. A platform should try to do you know secure by default computing, whatever it is. In your mind, is there a separation there? Are there clear things that all of those three parties are responsible for? I guess from from two years of working on Cloud Foundry, the first thing is definitely I anyone building their own platform these days who don't have you know hundreds of engineers working on it, um, I would say to definitely rethink that when you when it comes to security, just from all the the interesting bugs that we found in our own platform, I could imagine other people doing the exact same thing, and then you're not benefiting from you know, a community building a secure platform for you. Um, and then as you step it up to like actual operation of the platform, secure by default is definitely our philosophy. Uh, and I, I hope that we're trying to impart that to our customers as well, um, because there are definitely ways to configure any platform that are insecure that you have to worry about. Um, so from like the field teams to marketing to, um, just everybody working on Cloud Foundry, I think everyone is trying to encourage customers to set up their own networks and platforms in as secure way as possible. And I definitely think the platform can compensate for a lot of things that application developers might try to do. Um, so, for instance, we have all sorts of networking layers built in that um, can help application front ends and back ends talk to each other um, without letting anyone else in, obviously. Um, so application developers have to be careful, but we have to assume that uh, people in any system are going to make mistakes that could compromise your security. So you want to take the actual individual judgment of a person out uh, wherever possible. Um, I think we've definitely seen lately that security incidents tend to happen when um, things are one person's responsibility, either to update something or to make a split-second decision. So we want to take people and uh, 
all their fragilities out of the the security posture of the system as much as possible. Yeah, great answer. Well, I just have I just have one more question. It's more of an advice thing now. Now, if I figured out one thing about you, it's that you really like your dog, which is fantastic. I'm I'm all about liking dogs. But now I've got a dog, very very different build, but I think similar size. And this dog, all she's yeah. interested in doing is basically like licking my face constantly. Now. Is this something that I can work on with her or I just need to accept it and, and like have that be a thing that happens and just celebrate having my face licked by a dog a lot? What's, what's oh your my opinion? God. That's tough. Uh, my dog, who's Rory, who shows up in my, my presentations uh, as often as possible, she'll do that, but not forever. Like it'll just be a nice just like momentary. Like you're welcome home. I'm going to kiss your face a little bit. Hmm. Uh yeah, that's that's definitely a tough one. That might be just something you have to live with. Yeah, I, I mean, basically, I think the arrangement that we have is 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 she has uh, you know you know that zone that like if a fire's in your house, you're supposed to like crawl underneath the smoke so you don't asphyxiate. I think yeah. that that zone level is her zone, and so if you go into that zone, she can do whatever she wants to you, which means you can basically never sit on the floor if if you don't want to be covered in slobber. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's the, uh, or the, the truce that will work out and then I can just, you know, control when it happens, but man, it's, she's uh, very excitable with, with the licking, yeah. it's, which I, I should ask some vet people. I don't, not that I know any, but like what the deal with that is. Cause I mean, you know, dogs don't like taste things as a primary mechanism. <laughs> They're supposed to like smell stuff. Right. I don't know. It's. Um, well, that's good I, advice. They taste stuff, right? They're not snakes. Well, I mean, I mean the tongue isn't for I, smelling. Stuff. I mean, I mean, like in the sense of like it's a uh, <laughs> primary functional sense. Like you wouldn't say that us humans go around and like taste things to figure out the world, right? Like, I mean, speak for yourself. But okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas you know, more visual and tactile, and I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm no human uh, biologist person. Well, anyhow, thanks for being on. Uh, in addition to figuring out how to cope with my dog, we found out a few interesting things about security, but it's really that dog advice that I was here for. But uh, if, if, if people want to follow up or see the presentations we were talking about or anything like that, where, where would you send them? Um, so the Spring 1 2017 uh, website is great. It has all the talks. Um, if they want to see it again, I'm actually going to be speaking in Austin um, on April 30th at the Deliver Agile conference mm. um, that Richard so nicely invited me to. Um, and then I'll be speaking at Cloud Foundry, Cloud Foundry Summit Boston in April as well. Oh, exciting. All over the place. Well, great. Yeah. Well, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. Thanks for listening. If you want to go find all the old episodes and uh, find the RSS to subscribe to if you don't know how to do that on your own, you can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotalconversations, and it'll all be there. And about every Thursday or so, uh, we post the uh, full show notes, such as they are, the formal show notes, over at pivotal.io slash podcast. And then finally, just as one recommendation – 
you know, frequent podcast guest Jared, he had this post about three white papers that we had now don't don't stop listening yet just because I said white paper, but three white papers that we had uh, published. One of them is indeed on uh, security and compliance. And there's probably some PCI talk on in there, uh, which would be interesting. And there's another one I uh, I read when I was flying back from the uh, the sales kickoff about like thinking about how value stream maps uh, fit into all of this and how like there's an interesting emphasis on like waste removal from from a lean perspective in the software development cycle that's neat. And then, you know, for those who are like really in the weeds of IT service management, there's a whole paper on chargebacks, which I think, uh, you know, that's thrilling reading for people like myself, but it's, it's uh, definitely selective taste. But, uh, you know, with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>